invite you to open your Bible this morning to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians, as we begin a new year, we're beginning a new sermon series on this wonderful letter. Uh, If you remember, Paul planted the church in Ephesus. Uh, He pastored that church for three years. And um, so he knows them, he loves them, and is writing to encourage them. uh, He's writing from a prison in Rome, uh, but he has this just wonderful letter of encouragement as uh, he is striving to help them grasp the blessedness of being a Christian. That's the title of my message this morning, The Blessedness of Being a Christian. And uh, let's give our attention then to Ephesians chapter uh, 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, you've given us this word by the Holy Spirit, and we thank you that uh, you intend this word to feed our soul today. And so we trust that the Spirit, Lord, will accomplish that as uh, you speak to us. And we give you the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I'd like to begin this morning by um, asking you, when you look at yourself, what do you see? What do you see? And and maybe I could ask particularly, what are the things uh, about you that you're thankful for? We often think quickly about the things that we wish were different. What are the things that you're thankful for? The things that God has created in you. Um, maybe you're thankful just this morning for your health. Uh, maybe you're thankful for your intelligence, that your, your memory uh, works. At least it works somewhat, and you're able to re- reason through things. Or maybe your abilities, athletic abilities, relationship abilities, business abilities. Maybe you like uh, the way you look. Uh, you're, um, maybe you, you're thankful for your family. You're thankful for your marriage. Uh, all those are good gifts of God and things that uh, the world Uh, tends to uh, be appreciative of, things that we pursue. Uh, But uh, maybe you've not noticed this, but the truth is that all of those things are also the cause of most of the anxiety and despair in the world and grief in the world. Uh, Because we, we realize, everyone understands at some level, that all of these good blessings can easily be lost. And we, we, we sense that we're losing them. Uh, Healthy people get sick uh, and injured all the time. Uh, your intelligence, as, as the, you get older, you find that you're not quite as quick as you used to be. Memory's not what it used to be. Uh, but also you can, even in your young age, um, suffer an injury that robs you of that. Your abilities and your appearance are going to a decline as time goes by. And even you, uh, your marriage can suffer grievously from sin or, or, or be uh, um, deeply marred in that way by sin. But I want to... Um, and so people worry about that. People fret about it. People um, try to think of ways to protect the things that, that they uh, are appreciative for and the things that they had um, defined themselves by. But my question this morning is, what if there was something true about you 
that was infinitely better than any of these things that we've mentioned. Something that was true about you that was so glorious and so worthy, so valuable that angels marveled. Something about you that would never decline with age, that could never be taken away by injury. Something about you, in fact, that would only increase in glory for time and for eternity. And what if that were the thing that you really thought about when you thought about you? What if that's what came to your mind first when you, when you looked in the mirror in the morning? Or when you, when you took a look inside yourself? What if that were the thing that first came to mind? And the reason I ask that is because uh, how we see ourselves is one of the most important things about us in the sense that it impacts how you live. Your self-perception, your self-identity profoundly impacts um, how you think and how you engage the world around you. It, it impacts how you, uh, what you think about the future. It, it impacts how you deal with the present. As the old King James says, as a man thinks, so he is. As a man thinks in his heart. You could say, in fact, that the person that others see when they look at you is in many ways a reflection of what you see when you look at you. Because we live so much out of our self-identity and our self-perception. So what do you see when you look inside? Not the external, but when you look inside. If, if I were to ask, when you, what do you see when you think of yourself as a Christian or as a person? Do you see failure? Do you see weakness? Do you see anxiety, lack? Or do you see riches and strength and hope? It's very, very important. Paul, in this letter to his dear church back in Ephesus, is writing to people who are they're just a very, very small minority in a very aggressive pagan world. They are ridiculed and mocked routinely. They are so insignificant. Uh, they, they live in the presence of one of the seven wonders of the world, the great temple of Diana. Uh, all the power belongs to everybody else. The Romans, the pagan priests, they have no power. They have no identity in the world that matters to the world. And Paul is praying that they get the glory of what it means to be a Christian. And so he'll say and he'll pray for them in chapter 1, verse 18. He prays that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. He's not just praying that those things are true. They are true. What he's praying is that they will see them, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so they grasp the blessedness of being a Christian, the glory of being a child of God. And that's what we'll be looking at as we study our text this morning and go through this book. We're praying that God gives us the, uh, the ability to see, to grasp, uh, this incredible thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Well, let's begin with the greeting. Paul um, greets in a very familiar way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. I want to, as we're talking about identity, first just pause for a moment and think about Paul's self-identity. Uh, Paul 
had a clear understanding of who he was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Uh, Paul sees himself as an apostle. Uh, Paul, we're going to find, looks at everything theocentrically, but it's just a big word that means with God in view. So when Paul looks at himself, he looks at himself as God would see him, or with God in view, and when he looks at the church and, and others. He's always, God is always in the picture. Well, uh, when Paul uh, defines himself or introduces himself, he does so with God in the picture. So he, Paul could have said, I was, this is very interesting here, he could have said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That would be an adequate introduction. It would be a wonderful introduction. It's very significant. Paul's not writing to them just as a man. He's not even writing to them just as their former pastor. He's writing to them as the divinely authorized messenger of Jesus Christ. So that the things that Paul is going to tell them in this letter are not just things that he, Paul, wishes to communicate to them, but things that King Jesus wishes to communicate to them. It's a very significant introduction. And it would have been sufficient. But Paul doesn't stop by saying simply, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He adds these words, by the will of God. You see, there's something underneath Paul's apostleship. Something that is vast, that is weighty. And that something is the sovereign will and determination of the living God. Paul is an apostle for one reason. He didn't volunteer. He didn't get a merit badge to earn it. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus because God decided to make him one. The living God determined it. And you see, Paul sees then that, that his calling is rooted in the sovereign choice of God. The determining, defining force of Paul's life is God's will. And what Paul sees to be true about himself, he also believes is true about his audience. The people in Ephesus. The same thing is true for them. And so he, he identifies them as saints. The uh, brothers and sisters, how it, the world has thousands of different ways of defining us. By our skin color, by our socioeconomic class, our, how much money we have in the bank, what we do for work, how old we are. Uh, there's all sorts of ways of classifying you. Well, when it comes to the deepest truth about who you are, uh, that truth is not defined by anything other than or less than your relationship to God. That's the most fundamentally true thing about you. And when it comes to that, there are only two categories that God has for those who, uh, in relationship to him. The categories are sinner or saint. Those are the only two categories. And we need to understand them because we usually misunderstand them. To be a sinner, when we think about, if we call someone a sinner... Uh, our mind goes to their moral lack, their, their behavior. And we think of, when we think of a saint, we think of the same thing. We think of their moral ability, their godly behavior. They are, they are good people. 
Um, well, th- those things may be true, but they don't get to the meaning of the terms. Sinner and saint refer to status more than to character. They refer to status before God. And so a sinner is someone who is under the wrath of God, someone who is separated from God, without God and without hope in the world, someone who is spiritually dead, someone who is bound for eternal loss. That's, that's what the Bible means when it talks about a sinner. A sinner is someone who belongs to uh, our first father, Adam, and all the fall and ruin and sin and corruption that come from Adam. To be a sinner is to be in that category, in that status before God, in that status under the law of God, under the condemnation of the law. A saint is someone who's been taken out of that category and placed in a new category with a new status. Christians can resent uh, being called saints. If I would refer to you, as I greeted you this morning, Saint John, Saint Robert, Saint Mary, Saint whatever. How are you this morning? My sense is there'd be something within you that's, well, that's weird. I'm not a saint. Have you been, I mean, you know what I did this week? Uh, we, 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 we shrink from it a bit because well, we just don't feel like we're good enough to be called saints. Well, it completely misses the point of the term. Of course you're not good enough. It's not about uh, your character. It's a reference to your calling. A saint is someone who's been sovereignly called by God to belong to God, set apart for the service of God, for the glory of God. It's a divine calling, something that happens to you by divine determination. You didn't sign up for it. You didn't get born into it. You didn't ultimately make the choice to make it happen. You are a saint by divine determination. In other words, you are a saint for exactly the same reason Paul's an apostle, because God determined to make it so. I just want to just pause and stop and think about how that saturates your identity and your life with divine intention. You are not an accident. You're not just another random person bouncing around on this planet. There is there's divine intention about who you are, when you were born, how many days you're going to live, where you're, where you're going to live, what you're going to do. Your life is saturated divine intention. And the reason that you are no longer, if you are in Christ, no longer designated a sinner and now designated a saint is, is because God determined to make it so. And so he's taken you out of the designation of sinner and the status of sinner with all the ruin, all the loss, all the brokenness, all the death associated with that category and has brought you into the kingdom of his son and made you a saint with all the riches and all the glory and all the honor and all the blessing, all the everlasting life that belongs to that category. And that happened because God decided to make it happen. We are what we are by his will and according to his saving purposes in Christ Jesus. To be a saint is to be the most divinely intended of all of God's works. For, for to be a saint is to be a person that um, has been brought from here to here through the work of 
the Son of God, Jesus Christ. By virtue of your union with Christ. And so that's where Paul begins his letter. Let's look at the blessedness of what it means to be a saint. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The blessedness of being a Christian is that God gave you to Jesus, and with Jesus, God gave you everything that belongs to Christ. Ian Hamilton says, in giving us his son, our heavenly father has wrapped up in him every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Nothing has been withheld from us that could bring us blessing. I'm going to just uh, highlight two, Paul highlights two of those blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. The blessing of being chosen and the blessing of adoption. And again, our prayer here, the desire here, is that the eyes of our heart are enlightened so we stop thinking about ourselves in such narrow, self-referential terms, but we think of ourselves in the broad scope of, uh, of, of, of what God has done and what God has promised and what God is doing. And so he begins, verse 4, even as he, the Father, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul begins his inventory of the blessedness of being a Christian with the doctrine of election. It's probably not where we would begin. It's a doctrine, of course, that's fallen on hard times. It's rejected by most evangelical Christians in America. Uh, and yet their rejection changes nothing whatsoever about the truth of it. It is, a, it is a doctrine that is woven all the way through Scripture. You simply, to, to pull out the doctrine of election out of your Bible is, is similar to what Jefferson tried to do, Tom, uh, Thomas Jefferson, pulling out all the references to the deity of Jesus and all how bad people actually are. Uh, you end up with a pretty small little Bible. Listen to how Moses defined Israel in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's the word saint. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's exactly how Paul begins his letter to the church in Ephesus. God's people are by definition people whom God chose before the foundation of the world. In other words, before anyone had done anything good or bad, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 9. God chose to give some to Christ Jesus to be his own treasured possession. Not because of any merit in them, but purely because of his own pleasure and will. And all those whom God has chosen will be saved. That is the biblical doctrine of election. Now there is great mystery in the doctrine of election. And it can be a hard doctrine. It doesn't sound fair. Why did he choose some? Why not all? I remember having a conversation with someone not that long ago. And he said, it's, I, I, it's, I just don't like the story of the, the Bible tells. I don't like the story of God choosing some to be saved and not all. Why didn't God choose everyone? And the answer to that, of course, is, I don't know. And you don't know. And why don't we know? 
Because God hasn't told us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The revealed things belong to us and to our children. He hasn't told us. And he doesn't expect us then to worry uh, and to stretch our little brains trying to figure out the sovereign ways of an omnipotent, eternal God. What he has told us, he expects us to lay hold of and to to be blessed by. And what he has told us is, is what his purpose is. So Ian Hamilton says the Holy Spirit is far more concerned that we understand the purpose of God's election than its mystery. He has told us the purpose of it. There are two purposes that Paul mentions here. First, God shows us that we should be holy and blameless before him. He's called us to be his treasured possession, a people that belong to him, a people who have been called by God to his service, set apart from the world. Set apart from the category of sinner and now made saints. People who live to serve the Lord. People who've been set free by the Spirit to walk according to His commands. That's what God has in mind when He chose His people. But He has called the purpose is not merely functional. It's familial. It's not just to call the people who are going to do something but God has called a people and chosen a people to be something. And, that, and what he's called them to be is his family, his children. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. One of the reasons that people struggle with the doctrine of election is because it seems arbitrary. It seems cold. But if we understand, as Paul does, that it is an election to, in love, to family. And it is a wonderful comfort. Because you see, the doctrine of election answers one of the critical questions, the critical nagging questions that Christians can struggle with. How can I believe that God really loves me? There are, um, there are certain questions an adopted child can ask. Uh, One of them, um, you know, the the, the child is growing up and looks around and realizes, I don't don't look like the other kids. Uh, Different, maybe colored skin, I got a different build, different temperament. And they can start to ask, do I really belong here? Am I really a member of this family? And, And do my parents love me just as much as they love the other children? The natural children? And, and friends, Christians struggle with this all the time. We, we have this nagging sense that we might be imposters. I mean, after all, if you're a spiritually sensitive person, you, you, you look at other people and, man, they, their families seem to do so well. They, they look all put together. And you're confident that they're, they're living sanctified lives at a level that you just haven't gotten to yet. Or maybe, maybe you look at the persecuted church. I, this is one of the reasons I like keeping my eye on the persecuted church because I just see men and women who are laying it all on the line. There are people who, who walked seven miles on dusty, dirty roads today to get to church. That doesn't sound like American Christians. 
There are people who are gathering today under threat of death. If they're found out, they'll be thrown in prison. There will be people today, who pastors today, who will get up and preach, and the door's going to be broken in, and they're going to be beaten up in front of their congregation. And yet they show up, and they, and they, they carry out their calling. And when I look at people like that, and when I look at their devotion to Christ, and their joy in Christ, and, and the fact that they, they have given it all up, and then, and then I hear the song, when the saints go marching in, right? When the saints go marching in, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I, can, I can see all these beautiful saints going marching in. But am I one of them? Do I belong to that family? Do you? See, how do you answer those nagging doubts? I mean, does God love me the way he loves all of his other kids, his really godly kids, his devoted kids? Well, here's how an adopted child answers her questions. She can say, well, I am not a part of this family by accident. I'm not part of this family by simple biological process. I was chosen. I was purposed and elected. As you know, we have a new grandson, little Gideon, adopted. And I think Gideon has a unique advantage in our family. I think he's the only one of the whole lot of us that was planned. <clears throat> Uh, Joanne and I, my, our, our family planning was, we're pregnant, we better start planning. And, and, uh, and Gideon has this unique advantage. Gideon was chosen. An adopted child can say, I'm here on purpose. I'm here by intent and desire and design. I'm here because my mom and dad came looking for me. They wanted me to be their child, and they were willing to do whatever it took to make it happen. That's the biblical doctrine of election. Russell Moore says the doctrine of election tells, that, tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. God came looking for us. You see, the fact is there are no natural-born children of God. There are no natural kids. And there are no accidental kids. If you are in Christ, it's not because it just happened to you. You just happen to be raised in the church or you just happen to be raised in a Christian family. People say that all the time, that if you were born in, in another country, you'd be a different religion. Well, that might be true. But it's, it's not true for a Christian. If you're truly a Christian, you're not a Christian fundamentally because you were born in a Christian home. God maybe used that, but it's not what made you a Christian if you're a Christian, it's because God the Father came looking for you and he chose you from before the foundation of the world according to his purpose and will. He chose you because he wanted to. And your presence in the family of God then is solely, sovereignly, and gloriously due to the eternal electing love of your Father. And the love that elected you before the foundation of the world is the love that will carry you all the way through this world and bring you into the world to come. Don't ever doubt your place in the family. God, your Father, has chosen you, you, to be his very own. And he did so in Jesus Christ. And that's a really significant part. Notice our election is through Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing is in Jesus Christ. And that matters because, uh, you see, if you're adopted, there are barriers to cross. There are obstacles to overcome. Uh, it, legal obstacles, financial obstacles. And there are great obstacles, spiritually speaking, 
Think about the great barriers between us as spiritual orphans and the living God. He is perfectly holy and cannot look upon evil. And we were born evil, sinners in the category with Adam. There's a vast chasm between us and a holy God that we could not cross, we could not make right because by nature we were dead in our sin. Paul will say that in chapter 2. And so you could not possibly be adopted. I could not possibly be adopted into the family of God unless someone came to remove the barriers. And the gospel is someone has. Jesus came to make God's sovereign choice a reality. As God in human flesh, he crossed the barrier, between the chasm between a holy God and a fallen world. That's the beauty of the incarnation. And through his obedient life and and. and Submissive, atoning death, he broke down every barrier between you, the sinner, and God, the loving Heavenly Father. Jesus took us into himself so that Christ and all the riches that belong to him, all the glory that belongs to him, could belong to us. And it's through Jesus, you see, that we cross from this category to the category of saints. And here we are so vastly rich. Think of how poor we were without Christ. Think of the poverty of an orphan. Orphans are the poorest people in the world, not, not because they lack material possessions, but because they don't have parents. They don't have a mom or a dad to love them and to care for them, to call them by name, to, 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 to comfort them. Russell Moore, in, in his book, was um, talking about going. They adopted two Russian boys, and they went to an orphanage in Russia He says, of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all the others in its horror. It was quiet. The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. They didn't cry because no one responded to their cries. So they stopped. Friends, the greatest blessing that we have in Christ is the blessing of a heavenly Father who hears us when we cry. He becomes for us the God who hears prayer. The God who cares. The God who names us. The God who has committed himself to us. Who protects us and and saves us. The God who forgives all of our sins and heals all of our diseases because he's adopted us to be his children. No wonder John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. And God's desire, the reason this letter exists, is to help us to see it, to help us to grasp the truth of it, and that we stop defining ourselves the way the world defines us, or we stop defining ourselves the way our own conscience might define us but that we begin increasingly to define ourselves the way God has defined us as his saints, his dearly beloved children, called to his service, called to glory, called to belong to God forever. May we grasp the blessedness of being a Christian. Amen. The Father in heaven, this morning some are here who do not know any of the blessedness of being a Christian because they are not one. And I just pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of their heart to see the lostness of being in the category of sinner, 
and that you'd give them a heart desire to be found in Christ. Thank you, oh God, that you are gathering today people, calling them out of the darkness and death of sin and bringing them into the light and life of the saints of God. And Father, for those of us who have been foolish and we've forgotten our identity, we've forgotten who we are, and we've griped and complained, we've beat ourselves up, we, uh, Lord, have have thought of ourselves without any regard to you and no regard to Christ. And we ask your forgiveness. How could we have been so blind? And so, Lord, I pray you would open the eyes of our hearts that we are, would see ourselves according to who we truly are as the eternally chosen, infinitely loved children of God in Jesus Christ. And that that would change the way we think, the way we feel, that would change the way we live as our eyes are increasingly being opened to the incredible blessing of being a Christian. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing of the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. How vast the benefits divine. Let's sing and give thanks and praise to God.